the Triathlon Show 354. up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview dr tim podlogar tim is a research fellow at the university of birmingham and assistant professor at the university of primorska in slovenia and he's also a nutritionist for the bora hansgrohe world tour cycling team in today's interview with Tim, we discuss all things carbohydrates in endurance sports. This is one of Tim's main areas of expertise, and he's done a lot of, uh, of research in the area. So we'll go into all sorts of topics, including things like pre, during, and post-workout carbohydrate recommendations, train low strategies, continuous blood glucose monitoring, uh, glucose and fructose, 90 versus 120 grams per hour carbohydrates, and, and many of the typical questions that come up and get the most up-to-date information from uh, the field of scientific research, but also applied practice. As said, Tim is somebody who, who works very much uh, on the applied side of the sport as well. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, uh, that create sports nutrition products, including both carbohydrate products and electrolyte products. They also help you use these products effectively through a range of free tools, services, and content. Uh, Precision Fuel and Hydration have partnered up with Swift Tri Academy and will be helping the Swift Tri Academy athletes nail their nutrition and hydration strategy in the lead-up to Kona. And in parallel with this, they will be running monthly group rides on Swift, with the next one being this coming Thursday on the 8th of September. So if you just Google Precision Fuel and Hydration Swift Ride, you will find the link with all the information and you can sign up. And remember that as a listener of the podcast, you can get 15% off Precision Fuel and Hydration products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And remember that they offer free video consultations and a free fuel and hydration planner on their website. And thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer is a swim training tool that you can use at home that allows you to improve your technique, work on power and stamina, and save time and stay consistent. Uh, consistency is one of the main reasons that Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer can be such a valuable tool because sometimes you just don't have time to go to the pool with the commute that that uh, entails and uh, getting changed and all of that, but you might still have 20 to 30 minutes uh, for an at-home workout and then the Senate Swim Trainer is the perfect uh, supplement to your pool swimming. In addition, it allows you to do things like swim, bike, brick workouts and work on perfect core activation and streamline with the help of the built-in instability element of the swim bench. It doesn't take up a lot of space and it is very affordable and you can get a 20% discount code on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. Finally, it is a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks of using it, send it back and you can get a full refund. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Tim Podlogar. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Tim. How are you doing? Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. And yeah, um, I'm doing fine. Thanks to you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, thanks for doing, doing, doing well as well. Um, can you start by just introducing yourself? Uh, tell the audience a bit more about yourself, who you are and what you are doing. So um, it's a pretty long story. So I have a PhD in exercise metabolism from the University of Birmingham. Um, so pretty much focused on carbohydrate metabolism in particular. Um, I'm currently also employed by the University of Birmingham um, as a research fellow working in um, on a project looking at um, 
how heat acclimation affects exogenous carbohydrate oxidation rates. Um, but other than that, I'm also an assistant professor in one of the uh, Slovenian universities where I deliver some lectures. Um, and I'm also a nutritionist as of this year for Bora Hansgrohe um, cycling team working alongside Robert that I think you had a chance to interview um, a year or so ago. I did, yes, yes. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's really a cool position, of course, to hold with one of the World Tour teams. Um, you And you recently, actually, it's not published yet, I think, but you sent me a, a manuscript for a paper review of carbohydrate that will be published soon, I'm sure. So a lot of the questions that we'll get into now are based on on that manuscript, so we'll talk a lot about carbohydrates. And and if we just jump right into that, with uh, first discussing uh, discussing carbohydrates before, during, and after competition, uh, let's start by some general recommendations. Pre-competition carbohydrate recommendations. Can you talk about practical recommendations, but also the you know the mechanistic underpinnings and so on? Yeah. So here, like one of the really important things is. Um, to kind of make a difference between like elite athletes um, and like amateur athletes, but not because like amateur athletes are different in terms of physiology, but it's basically the timing of the start because amateur athletes usually start their races very early in the morning. And I think this is really important when we look at the like from the big picture what uh, to recommend to them and what to recommend for the elite athletes. For instance, today um, it's the... Um, at the time of the recording, like the Vuelta is taking place. Um, and for instance, today, the start of the stage is at, um, like after one o'clock, um, in the afternoon. Um, and this is very late. So as compared to like, for instance, like certain, um, amateur races, which would start like at seven in the morning. Um, so we have to have this in mind when we are talking about nutrition, um, pre-exercise. So if, you, if we are talking about like on the day, um, the main aim um, would probably be to replenish or fill up the um, both glycogen stores, um, so liver and the muscle. And I think this making a difference between the both uh, stores is really important. Why? Um, because during the night, we will not be using any muscle glycogen stores. Uh, whereas on the other hand, um, the brain is still working, the organs um, are still working. So we actually can reduce liver glycogen stores overnight. So the primary aim of the nutrition in the morning is basically to replenish liver glycogen stores. Um, and this is kind of important when we are talking about carbohydrates, um, especially the sources of carbohydrates. We've recently done a study uh, in which we um, gave people the same breakfast in terms of the quantity, but with different types of carbohydrates. So glucose or glucose and fructose. Um, the reason being that fructose we know needs to first go into the liver, um, is metabolized there. Um, and because it goes first into the liver, it takes care of liver glycogen stores first. And in, in that study, we actually found that time to exhaustion or time to task failure in the subsequent exercise was uh, longer uh, when people got glucose and fructose as compared to glucose only. So in practical terms, this would probably mean like some sort of rice or um, porridge oats, um, and it'll come back to these two um, ingredients in a bit. Um, and then additionally, we want some 
sources of fructose, which is like honey, uh, some jam, um, some juices or anything like this. So this is like, yeah. we want different types of carbohydrates um, in the morning meal. And then the next important thing, uh, in my opinion, is also uh, type of carbohydrates in terms of like, is it complex or is it simple? Um, if we have started seven in the morning or like eight in the morning, um, so there is a not, a not a lot of time to digest the food properly. Um, we actually want quick to digest foods. Um, low fiber, um, low fat. Um, and for instance, rice is preferable in my opinion over porridge oats. On the other hand, if you start at like 1 p.m. in the afternoon um, and you're not doing any running and it's just like cycling and gastrointestinal discomfort is not going to be like play a big role, uh, then perhaps porridge oats can be um, a good choice as well. Um, they contain a bit more fat, they contain a bit more... Um, um, fiber um, so the release of carbohydrates into the bloodstream will be slower but this will also like mean that perhaps you will not be as hungry in the morning um, as you would um, have been with rice that would get absorbed very very rapidly um, so like also the next question is then do we add like protein do we add some more fats um, and i think it's also then down to like is it one day race if it's one day race, then carbohydrates are the only thing we, that they matter in that morning. If you're talking about like multiple um, day stage race, like um, Grand Tour, then we actually want protein because, yeah, we need to be thinking about the recovery for the subsequent stages. Um, and we are not really fresh that morning. Um, we are still recovering from the previous stages. Um, so all those questions need to be considered when we like plan the nutrition on the day itself yeah that's a, a fantastic answer and i have a few follow-up questions uh first uh, a lot of amateurs their stage races are not three week stage races but maybe three day or four day stage races for example um or it could even be racing two triathlons back to back sprint triathlons or something or a sprint and a relay so in in that situation when you have let's say you have a four-day stage race uh would you would you then be concerned also with getting in some protein and and some fat uh, even though it's in kind of in between that that uh that long stage race that pro cyclists do and a one-day race um i would probably like the the first thing i would say is like get the carbohydrates right. That's the most important. Get the quantities of carbohydrates um, high enough. Um, and if there is like time to digest the food and we add protein and then we add fat. So it's carbohydrates first, then it's protein and then it's fats. Um, so like if you have problems with eating a, lo a lot of food, which many amateur athletes perhaps have, so you can't really reach the enough, the intake of sufficient amount of um, carbohydrates, um, then obviously you want to reduce the amount of fats and then also perhaps protein because it's about carbohydrates that's going to provide you with the energy. Um, so ideally, like, yeah, there would be some protein as well. Um, not so much fats, but um, yeah, it depends really what works and what doesn't work. But definitely carbohydrates are, are a priority. Got it. And when you mentioned the uh, examples of uh, carbohydrate sources uh, for for the the pre race breakfast, uh, in the fructose options, you mentioned things like honey and uh, juices and so on. I noticed that you didn't mention any fruits. Like I, I imagine for a lot of people, it's 
probably very common to have a banana at least in in training is there a reason that you didn't mention uh straight up fruits uh, is there something in particular going on there that makes you less uh prone to recommend that um no not really like some fruits perhaps have a lot more fiber uh which we obviously don't mm-hmm. want in the early morning um and also you have to check the fructose content of certain fruits because sometimes fruits are not high in fructose at all and they're like mm-hmm. mostly glucose based um I don't know the fruits that are high in fructose from the top of my head. Um, like probably grapes are high in fructose, but they also have skin. So, um, they have plenty of fiber. Um, so it's really like down to, um, testing what works. For instance, like I usually have for breakfast, um, rice with pure fructose. Um, and it works fine for me. Um, mm. and I add some like Nesquik powder on the top of it, which is again, sugar um in one-to-one ratio probably so um that works yeah. well um and for one day race it's probably fine for a multiple day stage race that would be like um too boring i guess yeah and and then you mentioned a study that you did there with the improved time to exhaustion with uh combining glucose and fructose for breakfast did you did you also look at any um mechanisms behind that did you look at for example i don't even know if it's possible to to assess liver glycogen (laughs) very easily did did you do anything like that or was it just a pure time exhaustion test yeah it was kind of this uh, the study we did um in slovenia so we were like kind of um limited with the mechanisms uh, that we could investigate um unfortunately no we didn't assess liver glycogen stores uh you would need an mri for this um because biopsies are like probably out of the question these days, um, especially liver ones. Um, but yeah, it was kind of interesting to see kind of, we saw like an improvement of, um, we we're talking about the range of 130 minutes of exercise and the improvement was like seven minutes, um, which is, I think, quite a lot. Um, the breakfast was two grams per kilo of body mass. So not a lot of energy um, at all. Um, and yeah, the intensity was the first lactate threshold. Um, and surprisingly, at least to me, there was no change in metabolism during exercise. And I think this is really important. So basically um, the total amounts of carbohydrates um, that were uh, probably more available because of the fructose ingestion um, were not like, oxidize at a higher rate at the start of exercise because very often you can see like yeah you have higher glycogen stores at the start of exercise but you also then oxidize more carbohydrates so after like two hours you could get to the same point but in this case the carbohydrate oxidation rates uh, were exactly the same from the start um, to the last last point when uh, we did measurements in both conditions meaning that the more carbohydrates that were stored were actually used like to prolong exercise rather than just to burn more carbs and less fat. Mm, yeah, <clears throat> makes sense. And what about uh, muscle glycogen uh, loading, making sure that you arrive at the start line with with uh, fully replenished uh, muscle glycogen store? So that would be uh, dependent on what you eat and what and how you train in the couple of days before the race can can you talk more about that so yeah i know that 
most like most people recommend like multiple day um, glycogen um, loadings uh, protocols like two days um, in advance of a race. I always go with just one day glycogen loading. Um, and the reason being that usually um, athletes also train the day before. Um, so they go for like one hour activation ride or one hour or two hour spin. Um, and based on the evidence, we know that uh, the more glycogen you have stored, the more you will use it. Um, so I see no sense or no point in like loading two days in advance when you will then just be using the lot of glycogen um, that uh, morning before the race. So I think it's like enough if you just do like that training session the day before, very early in the morning, um, and then use this stimulus um, for like replenishing of the glycogen after it. Um, so that you do like kind of a super compensation just after it. And then you just eat like 12, 10 to 12 grams per kilogram of body mass on the day. Um, low, little uh, fats, um, moderate amount of protein. And I think this works very well. Um, there is probably enough time um, to get the levels really high. Um, and yeah, from experience from my athletes, um, this works pretty well so far. Um, and like, even if you look at the professional cyclists, they don't have like two days between stages um, and they usually successfully recover in one day um, and probably get the glycogen levels um, topped up. Um, mm. And then it's also like the next question is the duration. Um, do we really need always um, to do glycogen loading? And I would say pretty much yes, uh, because we can like deplete glycogen stores in hour and a half to two hours. Um, like when we do in the labs glycogen depletion protocols, it's very funny to see um, that people last like an hour and a half to two hours and a half, and then they basically can't do any more. And this means they are glycogen depleted and that's the cause of fatigue. Um, so you probably want to super compensate or like get glycogen levels topped up uh, before any activities that are like, probably longer than 90 minutes, I would say. What about if you're doing, you know, a 10K run or something that takes 30, 30 minutes or, or so, all depending on your speed, but but even your average runner will, will take less than an hour to do a 10K run, would you would you still recommend? And you're, you're going for it, you want to set your personal best or something, would, would you still recommend glycogen loading for that kind of event? Probably not like glycogen loading as such, but only like a high carbohydrate intake. Um, so we're like not talking about probably 10 to 12 grams, but like more like eight rounds per kilo of body mass um, because we still kind of want um, a lot of carbohydrates in the body. Um, carbohydrate use is more efficient at fat utilization uh, and like this way we can probably gain a few seconds uh, just by using more carbohydrates. But at the same time, we also don't want uh, to gain a lot of um, extra weight down to the water retention uh, with glycogen. Um, which can reduce the exercise economy. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's a fine line between going too high and too low. Um, so it's also a bit more about practice because um, some people like feel very good or very bad when they um, do glycogen loading the next day. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, I, I would say it's a bit, a bit more personal. Um, mm. 
Yeah, eight grams per kilo body weight. I, a couple of times before races, I've tried to actually calculate how how much carbohydrate I'm getting, and 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 uh, I've usually aimed for ten grams for like a half distance race, for example. Um, but even eight grams, I've found that I was surprised by how much that is and how difficult it is to get in that amount of carbohydrate. So I, I think a lot of um, athletes are actually not aware of just how how many carbohydrates you need to consume and how how difficult that can actually be unless you really think about it so so what kind of sources of carbohydrates would you recommend for this let's say one day carb loading and now we can talk about you know a longer race 90 minutes plus where you really want to be in that 10 to 12 gram per kilogram range yeah i'm 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 a person that i'm very well known for be a supporter of haribo gummies uh (laughs) Because I find them to be probably the best uh, source of um, energy to do like glycogen loading. Um, like I don't want to say like just eat Haribo's, but when you really want to push for high intakes of carbohydrates, um, you probably want like simple carbohydrates, um, and this works very well. Um, the like they are glucose fructose based, um, so they have uh, like both the carbohydrate types. Also, some like sweet beverages, like juices, are pretty um, easy to digest and pretty good, I think. Um, and the worst would probably be eating like some whole grains and trying to be healthy, trying to eat potatoes and stuff. That's going to be a problem uh, getting all those carbs in. So my recommendation usually is like have normal meals like uh, breakfast lunch and dinner uh, with some protein with some moderate or small amount of fats but other than that go with like simple sugars um, and don't be afraid of eating sugars the day before Um, it's just fine Um, you won't get diabetes in one day (laughs) yeah that's that's good advice and and i found that in practice that's that that's the only way that it's really possible to to do it properly um now moving on to during competition recommendations um what are your recommendations for carbohydrate intake uh, in yeah during the competition so yeah it's like it's a this is a really difficult question especially recently uh, given some evidence that um people can oxidize more than 90 grams per hour uh, because so far um, it's been recommended that up to 90 grams of carbohydrates are ingested per hour um, during like prolonged competitions like Ironman probably or like cycling races. Um, and recently like there is a trend that people should go higher to 120, for instance, grams per, um, uh, per hour, um, which kind of is loads. Um, and in my opinion, like, the first rule found, the first rule is get the glycogen stores up, um, super high. And then the next thing is then the nutrition during exercise. Uh, because basically low glycogen stores are like, um, a reason for fatigue. And we know that, um, ingesting carbohydrates, uh, during exercise, um, don't really, can't really, um, um, save muscle glycogen stores. It saves liver glycogen stores, um, primarily. So like helps maintain blood glucose concentrations, um, normal, um, for the longer, uh, periods of time. Um, so I think like in this regard, like pre, uh, race nutrition is more important, but then during exercise, it also down, comes down to, um, actually the um, energy expenditure. So for instance, if you're doing like, 
um, an event with 120 watts um, or 150 or 180 watts on average, um, the energy expenditure is much lower than, for instance, if you would uh, have gone with like 280 watts. Um, and I think this is really important to consider when you're speaking or talking about um, intakes of carbohydrates, because if there are no requirements for super high intake of carbohydrates, I can't believe the carbohydrates would have been used efficiently. Um, so like for most people, I think going with 90 grams per hour still makes more sense. Um, and for even for female athletes, which are usually lighter, um, and that's why I say female, because they're just lighter usually, um, the power outputs are then uh, lower as a result. Um, even going with up to like 60 grams per hour uh, makes sense. Um, and another thing that I've been kind of practicing with my athlete is to gradually increase the intake over time um, in a race. So if you're like riding for five or six hours, but when you start, you have full glycogen stores, um, muscle and liver. Um, and the muscle is not really ready to take up more glucose uh, because the glycogen is, glycogen is in there. So what you do with very high rates of um, ingestion rates of carbs, you just suppress fat oxidation rates um, and you don't do anything about sparing glycogen. So I would probably start with like 70 grams in the first hour and then try to increase um, the intake towards the end um, because that's when glycogen stores in the muscle um, start to go low um, and the glucose uptake by the muscles uh, themselves, it starts to go up uh, because there is not enough um, glycogen left in them. Um, and that's when we see the highest rates of exogenous carbohydrate oxidation rates of the, um, carbohydrates that, the carbohydrates that we ingest. Um, and like if it, the, the event is super long and if the gut is trained, so we are able to tolerate, I see no problem in going with 120 or even more. Um, and I can probably say that, yeah. Um, professional cyclists sometimes go even higher. Um, I've seen numbers like 140, 150 grams per hour without tissues and very, with very good results. Um, but, um, yeah, um, sometimes you, one of the things with like in stage races is, uh, well, uh, they say, um, they calculate the energy expenditure, um, and they, energy want to match energy intake so if you go with super high intake for instance during the stage um, then you obviously have to reduce the amount of energy um, that's ingested after the stage um, and if we compare like five hour long activity um, 90 versus 120 grams per hour um, you can come up to two grams per kilogram of body mass that you could ingest in the recovery uh, time. Um, so I think this is also important in, to take into consideration for stage races, whereas for like one day races, um, going with 90, yeah, and progressing to 120, that's perfectly fine and probably advisable, but that's, yeah, really for elite athletes, I would say. Mm, yeah, uh, that's another great answer. And I have a couple of follow-up questions. First, uh, regarding increasing carbohydrate intake uh, towards um, progressing carbohydrate intake through the event. In triathlon, what's commonly done, of course, is, well, you don't consume anything during the swim. And 
and then on the bike it's easy to carry nutrition and consume nutrition compared to the run so so a lot of athletes just consume the most on the on the bike and then a bit less on the run and, and nothing on the swim so so how would you recommend in a triathlon context uh because then you, then you might would you still try to basically train your gut to be able to consume the most on the run or at least as much on the run as on the bike or would you have a different recommendation for triathlon compared to cycling yeah that's um a really good like question and i've been thinking about triathlon quite a lot um, as well um and one of the things that probably the big mistakes that um, triathletes do uh, when it comes to fueling is they have like a certain plan so let's go with 90 grams per hour uh, throughout the event for instance um, and they start experiencing gastrointestinal issues um, in the run and they keep eating because that's the plan that's what the plan said and I think this is kind of a big problem uh, because gastrointestinal discomfort is usually um, caused by um, residual carbohydrates sitting in the intestines so why add more carbohydrates um, at that point and I think it makes no sense to just keep eating because if it's not the carbohydrates are not that are already in the intestines are not being absorbed then adding more would just make the situation worse um, so it's all it's all about like yeah uh, thinking um uh, what the plan is and then yeah how do you feel so if you feel okay then you can progress with this intake um otherwise you just reduce it um and it's also like one of the things that you can think about is a concept of a funnel so you eat a lot of carbohydrates on the bike um and carbohydrates obviously don't get absorbed straight away so you need some time for the absorption to take place um and the residual carbohydrates will then be absorbed during the run. Um, and if you go yeah too high towards the end of the bike, um, you will be, pay- you might be paying with these unabsorbed carbohydrates during the run, um, in the early stages. So perhaps on the bike, you have to do like a lot of carbohydrates in the beginning and then see how you feel. And then perhaps towards the end, even decrease the intake. Um, so that you start the run session without residual carbohydrates and then if you're feeling okay you then again increase the intake um during the run um i I think that makes a lot of sense especially in in something like an ironman where when you get on the bike you've already been swimming for uh, around 50 minutes if you're one of the fastest uh, athletes or maybe one hour and a half if you're one of the slower athletes or, or or even longer so so you have gone a long time without of exercise without getting any energy into you so then it does make sense to to really kind of not just fuel a lot early on on the bike to to fuel that bike but the the swim that came before it and that you that you didn't have any chance to to fuel during so so i, I like that uh, that approach and uh yeah regarding the 90 grams 120 grams even 60 grams in some cases uh, if you were to just give some very rough recommendations and and we can maybe do do this as well from a triathlon context what level of athlete uh, and what distance would you recommend maybe experimenting with going higher than 90 gram for and for what level of athlete and what distance is it is 90 grams appropriate and and for what level of athlete or and a distance might less than like 60 grams be 
be the best starting point at least to experiment with so it's probably say like around three hours so up or above um so for more than three hours i would probably go with 90 grams per hour for most um assets um with elite assets perhaps 120 grams per hour um and then for like some novice female assets that are not that are super light i would go with 60 only uh, to prevent any gastrointestinal discomfort um, and because uh, actually the energy expenditure um, is not as high. Uh, whereas if it's lo- less than three hours, um, as I said before, if you have full glycogen stores, um, then you don't need a lot of like kind of additional energy because you sh- probably will, like you need it for like last um, 45 minutes or so. Um, so going with like um, up to 90 grams, uh, 45 to 90 grams, um, like 90 for um, elites and then 45 for, um, yeah, amateur athletes. That would probably work pretty well. Mm, yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, moving on then to after the competition, um, how, yeah, what was the recommendations there? Yeah, so this is, um, yeah, another really nice um, discussion to have. Uh, so one of the things I, really like to have like after every single session uh, is it easy or is it hard i usually recommend to have protein and carbohydrates straight away so like the first thing that happens uh you get the carbs you get the protein um and very little fat and very little fiber to actually initiate the recovery processes um as quickly as possible um and usually like the recommended dose for carbs is um, around one to 1.5 grams per kilogram of body mass. Um, and I think it's here it becomes also, again, important to combine different uh, carbohydrate types. So um, glucose-based carbohydrates and fructose. Um, so again, like certain juices um, work really well, um, or even Fanta or Coke that we see many professional riders um, using um, because yeah, these are sugars. Um, and yeah, obviously the protein to start the, um, also the protein synthesis, um, yeah, in the damaged, uh, fibers. Um, so this is kind of the most important thing, getting the energy in as quickly as possible. And then the next. And, and, a, and a follow up, uh, yeah. sorry, a follow up on that. So when you say getting, when you want to get it in straight away, the first thing after, uh, exercise, we've heard a lot of times about the 30 minute window. It has been called, uh, but you're basically saying that, well, you would prefer it to be something that you do immediately. So what is the, the benefit of doing it immediately? Or what do we know about the, the time course and the effectiveness of of uptake based on how long you do it after exercise yeah i'm not too concerned about like really the 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 window of opportunity because we know it really doesn't that doesn't really exist if you like have the recovery of 24 hours or even more um the the thing is that if you kind of prolong this time you kind of lose the time to ingest the carbo the sufficient amount for carb of carbohydrates for the next day because obviously if you finish like the, the day at like 4 p.m and to wait another hour then it, it's 5 p.m and then you don't want to eat just before sleep so you're limited with a really limited amount of time when you can actually eat and so getting food in as quickly as possible makes it possible for actually to ingest sufficient amounts of food um, in the day. Um, and this way you kind of 
yeah, you achieve the replenishment of uh, muscle and liver glycogen stores. And then if you, if you wait, you're basically, um, in elite athletes, you did basically yeah, reduce the amount of time that is available for replenishing, for replenishing of glycogen stores. But in amateur athletes, what I've, I'm finding um, also um, like day-to-day training is that if they don't eat straight away, um, they have um, food cravings later in the day because they basically starve themselves. Um, and yeah, basically they then overeat um, for the rest of the day or the next day um, unless we kind of sort out the nutrition after the training sessions um, straight away. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, and if you remember where you were going before I cut you off there with that question, you can you can keep going uh, with the uh, post-competition recommendations. Um, yeah, I kind of forgot where I was going. <laughs> well, then, so then I'll, I'll, I'll direct us uh, back on track. So, yeah, so if we talk then about uh, an actual race or maybe it's a li- really long, hard training day, but well, let's, let's talk about race, races. Oh, yeah, so you've done a yeah. race that is three hours or longer. And uh, yeah, what, what's what's the recommendations in that case yeah so yeah the next thing is always look ahead what the next training session is like what the next session is um, going to be Um, because when i look at the nutrition i don't look at the nutrition as from zero to 24 hours in a day i always look it between two training sessions so the next day basically starts after this recovery meal that you get um, and then you start thinking about what's coming, how much glycogen I need to undertake that training session, um, how recovered I am for that training session. So for instance, like um, if I have like two hour easy ride um, on the day or a training session um, and the next day is super like hard demanding intervals, uh, a double day for instance, then I would have to kind of eat a lot um, for the rest of the day, a lot of carbohydrates. And actually, if we were to look at the um, energy expenditure and energy intake from zero to 24 hours on the day, you would be in an energy um, surplus um, because you basically are fueling on the day for the next day. Um, so it's kind of the math become more um, complicated, but always like fuel for the work required on the next day. Um, and then it, da- it comes down to also the, whether you want to like care for recovery or is it like a really easy session and you can kind of do it with a slightly reduced glycogen stores um, or yeah, is this even an option? Um, so you have really a lot of possibilities there. But the most important thing is to ask yourself, what do I need to get through the next training session? Mm. Uh do you have any numbers in terms of, for example, with the with the Buddha unscrewer riders, if they have uh, a really hard day the next day, they go out and do a, an easy two or three hour ride in the morning, and then they have the entire day to recover, and then the next day is going to be a really hard day, an intense day. How how many grams per kilo body weight of carbohydrates would would they be looking to to get in uh, to to fuel for that? that session because it's it's not a race so but it's still an important training session so what would the 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 carbohydrate intake requirement be so um yeah i can probably say how i mean when i calculate the intakes i always like predict what the energy expenditure of the upcoming training session will be 
um, and then I just work backwards um, and distribute the carbohydrates um, during the session and then in the recovery uh, so that they are in energy balance um, from the end of the one session to the end of the next one. Um, and that's how I usually do it. And then you just correct um, for the mistakes you've made in the assumptions of how much they will expand during the strain session. Um, so it can be a lot, it can be very little, um and yeah um so it's really okay. difficult yeah. to like really say that the quantities yeah. yeah yeah and and final question then a if let's say you do your last ironman of the season and then you have two weeks off uh does it matter what you eat or after the ironman or let's say you have maybe no that's that's a bad question actually let me rephrase it let's say you do you do an ironman but then Three weeks later, you have a half Ironman. You're not going to train the next couple of days. You're going to recover from the Ironman, but then you want to get back into uh, building up training again because you, you only had three weeks until the next race. Um, so given that you have two days of no training after the race, uh, does it matter what you eat after the race or can you be relaxed about that and then basically start thinking about that in a couple of days when you get back into training again? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And... Um, in terms of physiology, yeah, it matters. In terms of psychology, it probably doesn't matter. And I think nutrition is not just about physiology. It's, it's not just about numbers, but it's also about feeling good. And um, basically, it's recovery. It's recovery of the physiology and also the yeah, the mind. You have to mentally be prepared for the next next training block block um, for the next training sessions and perhaps. If for a certain person that means that he can enjoy some more, like, I don't know, unhealthy, let's say, uh, foods, um, and this will help them, um, get through the next important training block without any big, um, like, um, cravings for certain foods, then I think that's, yeah, that's fine. And I really don't see a problem with like having a few, like, let's say cheat days after, uh, the train, the important or really hard races, um, that's just fine. Um, it's not just about physiology. It's also psychology that's important. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's move on to some, some discussions related to, uh, carbohydrate use and manipulation in training. So first of all, if we discuss a little bit around train low strategies that we have talked about on this podcast before, but, uh, now let's get the, the latest, uh, most up-to-date information from you. What's your take on train low strategies when, if do you, if you should use them, when to use them and how, how to use them? So yeah, train low strategies. So basically to just, yeah, do like an intro. Um, so the aim is to have primarily low muscle glycogen stores uh, before the start of the training session so that you potentiate the responses um, of such a training session after it um, so that you can get bigger stimulus um, for like for a given training workout. Um, and in some research, some research has shown that this can actually lead in, into performance uh, improvements. And there is some evidence that says there is no difference as opposed to as compared to like training with normal carbohydrate availability. And I think it all comes down to the type of athletes we are working in uh, with um, and how much time they have available for training. Because 
training with low carbohydrate availability, um, so with low glycogen stores at the start of the exercise, means that we can't really ride for five or four hours um, at relatively high intensity. If you're looking, even talking about like the first lactate threshold, we can't, we can forget about four hours uh, with no or very little muscle glycogen at the start. Um, so what we lose by doing this um, training with low glycogen is the volume, the training volume. Um, whereas in athletes, for instance, that are only that are limited in time, for instance, like you have ten hours a week and you want to use it wise, wisely, um, that can be a really good way of making uh, or achieving very similar adaptations, um, like. You only do like a two-hour ride in the morning after not consuming any carbohydrates after the previous training session the previous day. Um, you only have two hours and you perhaps get benefits as if you would do a, like a three-hour long ride with normal carbohydrate availability. On the other hand, we also know that training volume for elite athletes is probably of paramount importance. Um, so you probably want you really can't afford to reduce the training volume um, so that you can do certain training sessions with low carbohydrate availability at the start or even risk more muscle damage um, and prolong the recovery. Um, so I would never actually recommend doing like low glycogen training sessions in elite athletes, especially knowing that most of these uh, sessions will actually result in low glycogen stores um, anyway because the duration of the training would be so high um, and the training like the intensity is relative intensity is also so high that yeah they will be depleted and pretty empty by the end of the session and i think that's a stimulus big enough uh, to induce the adaptations thereafter so to sum up i think it's useful for people that are time limited but it's not useful and i think can lead to um overtraining even um, in athletes that have all the time available for training. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point you make there with uh, the elite athletes or high volume athletes that can do the long rides that they they might still finish with uh, with low glycogen source and get the same adaptations anyway. And, and I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you know, but it was it James Morton uh, who coined the term finish low so as opposed to train low or which implies starting with low glycogen uh if if the ride is long enough and then then you you might you might still finish with with low muscle glycogen and that could just give you those same adaptations plus of course the extra volume that you get in so so of course the overall stimulus would be uh would uh in theory be higher anyway but um a follow-up question on if you are a more time limited athlete and and you might have uh, some use for train low strategies how would you go about implementing that for example how how often how frequently would you do that kind of training and and how would you make sure that you get to this uh, to the workout in a low muscle glycogen state so i think First of all, this is very individual. Um, so for instance, some people um, really struggle when they have low glycogen availability. So for instance, the most popular strategy is the sleep low strategy. So you do um, a really hard training session um, on day one, like intervals, you well fuel them. Um, and because it's interval training session, you will probably finish it with low glycogen stores. And then for the rest of the day, you would withhold from carbohydrates. So you know carbohydrates, just protein and some fat. 
Uh, and then next morning you would jump on the bike and do that hour and a half to two hour long training session at moderate to low intensity. Um, for some people, um, this would be no problem like to do to execute, um, whereas some would first of all struggle in the afternoon, like mentally, um, would be like very useless at home if they had, have kids that would be really like bad could be bad parenting because um, you don't have energy to do uh, much. Um, and then many people also struggle sleeping. Um, there is actually one study showing that there is no like problems with sleeping, but myself, I personally experience a lot of problems when I'm low in glycogen, so I sleep very badly. Um, and there are some other people as well. So if you fall into this category, then yeah, you have a problem. If you sleep normally, then it's perfectly fine. Um, and then the next morning, um, you would do this training session. Um, and especially in the beginning, when you do this for the first time, first few times, probably, um, one of the strategies that you, you can use to actually get through the session is to, um, add carbohydrates, um, at some point during the training session. Um, I did a study on this, like during my PhD, um, when I was into this kind of low glycogen training, um, and I believed in it. Um, I'm not such a believer anymore, but the time I was thinking, how can we still get the training volume up? Um, and one of the proposals I had was to get, um, carbohydrates ingested with a, with a delay so that probably the insulin level don't really go up. They re see no spike and that the fat oxidation rates um, remain high and actually this is what we did so like after half an hour of exercise we started added carbohydrates uh, and basically blood glucose levels uh, were stabilized and were stable um, to the end of the session um, and this way yeah we didn't even like reduce fat oxidation rates fat oxidation rates were super high um, also yeah and the blood glucose was stable um, and the perceived effort was lower um, and I think this kind of strategy would work uh, pretty well as well um kind of delayed feeding um and but over time probably the athletes would get used to it and even these carbohydrates wouldn't be necessary anywhere um anymore um, another strategy would be to use more caffeine or do mouth rinsing so just um have the carbs in the mouth but not um swallow them um and then just like spill them out um these are all the strategies that are sometimes recommended for this kind of training. Yeah, yeah. And and regarding the frequency, if an athlete is pretty tolerant to this kind of training, they seem to be responding well. How frequently would you say that they could they could do it? I would probably personally do it like up to max twice a week, probably like once a week. For instance, like you have one session, very easy. Um, you recover well after each training session, and then you do that glycogen depleted. Mm, yep, makes sense. Um, and uh, yeah, I know in your in in the review that uh, that is going to be published soon, you talk quite a bit about REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport, as well. I'm not going to go into that too much because we have had a fairly recent episode with Dr. Margot Mountjoy about that specific topic. But I think we should briefly at least mention the connection between carbohydrate availability and reds but also and also bone health in particular so if you can just give some some comments around uh, around their relationship yeah i think it's kind of carbohydrate availability um makes the biggest impact on the hormones um in terms of like 
cortisol, glucagon um, in the recovery process. Um, and for instance, if we don't have sufficient amount of carbohydrates, um, obviously the body will sense that, that there is not enough energy, especially carbohydrates, because carbohydrates are the preferred fuel and then will make adjustments in the way how the body um, functions um, and will basically uh, um, perhaps um, slow down certain processes like uh, bone formation or um, recovery. Um, and there is more and more evidence yet yeah, that basically the red S uh, is primarily um, down to carbohydrate availability, uh, not necessarily like overall energy availability, but really primarily about carbohydrates. And I think this makes sense if you have like liver glycogen stores that are constantly low, uh, this might mean uh, low glucose levels. And we know that like hypoglycemia is obviously a problem. Um, and also if you have low liver glycogen stores, then what you do to maintain uh, blood glucose levels is um, making glucose molecules from um, like muscle tissue or from protein. Um, so you start breaking down uh, the body rather than like building it. Um, so it's like in very simple terms, yeah, you have a problem uh, in there. Um, and I was looking at like, because energy availability is really important for like for cyclists. And there is a really nice study from a long time ago. Um, can't remember the author, but it actually showed that it was... Um, carbohydrate availability that was, for instance, driving the um, low carbohydrate availability that was driving the low testosterone levels in like male athletes rather than fat availability, because sometimes or very often we hear that, yeah, uh, you have low testosterone levels because fat intake is not sufficient, but it can also be that carbohydrate intake is not sufficient. Um, so it's not like just one answer you have, yeah. Um, it's not just yeah about the calories it's i think mostly about the carbohydrates mm, yeah and uh another concept that uh that has been talked about a lot and researched quite a bit in in the last five or ten years maybe is uh carbohydrate periodization so can, can you define first of all what that is and and then give some some of your thoughts and recommendations for if and how to use it yeah, so the carbohydrate periodization probably started with this train low strategy uh, that we uh, uh, discussed. Uh, so basically, uh, it was shown that you don't or you can potentiate the responses to training sessions by starting training sessions with lower carbohydrate availability. Um, so for some time, it was really like the periodization was very polarized. So like training sessions that are low intensity, you do, you do them like with low carbohydrate availability during and before, um, that's it. And then for high um, intense, intense training sessions, you load the glycogen stores and you do them um, effectively. This this is kind of the, the oh, probably the old strategy to carbohydrate periodization. But probably now these days, it's more about like just making sure that you fuel for the work you require. So you don't say, like, okay, you have four-hour long training session day after day, and then you look at the table of the sports nutrition recommendations. Okay, for four-hour long training session, I need like 10 grams per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates, and you do this day after day. But rather, you look at what the demands of these four hours are. 
Is it interval training session? Okay, perhaps I need more than 10. I need 12 grams per kilogram of body mass of carbs. And then if it's a four hour long training session, low intensity, I can perhaps get away with eight. Um, so it's always like a, a bit more about balancing the carbohydrate intake based on the, the demands of the next training session. And, and as you mentioned, I think it's more about finishing the training session with low glycogen rather than starting the training session with low glycogen. Um, and if we consider about this, like finishing the training session with low glycogen uh, to be like the, the most important stimulus, then it makes sense to actually give enough energy so that you get through the session, but not too much. So that you're like, I don't know, um, you have a really hard day today um, and the next day is just two hours easy. Um, and because I had a really hard day today, I can eat today like 10 grams of kilogram uh, of carbs. Uh, that's probably too much for the next training session. Um, and you won't get the adaptations um, after it that you would normally get if you had like less because yeah, obviously the session is easy. Um, so I think this is kind of the carbohydrate periodization these days, like really fueling for the work you've right? thinking one step ahead um, and seeing what really needs to be eaten. Yeah, I think that's from this question and other questions as well. It's becoming one of the main takeaways from this interview, thinking one step ahead and, and looking at what you have coming up and uh, yeah, having that be a big part of, of your nutrition and carbohydrate planning so that's a yeah a re really good uh, good information uh and what about training the gut uh, another topic that has been discussed and researched more recently uh what's your take on that so the most important thing is to discern between tolerance and absorption so we do the train the gut usually um thinking that by eating a lot of carbohydrates on the bike or during the run, we will train the body um, to be able to absorb more carbohydrates um, from the intestines into the bloodstream. Um, but this is like, this is just a theory. Um, and I think what we are actually doing is building the tolerance for carbohydrates. Um, because the gut doesn't really discern between exercise time and rest. Um, and if there was a, like, I think it's not a really sufficient stimulus to actually um, increase the amount of um, transporters for the carbohydrates, um, just eating on the bike. I think it's, if it is, if we can actually increase the amount of transporters, we will do this by having a really high carbohydrate diet throughout the day so that basically um, the intestines are keep getting the, um, the high amount of carbs, um, not just during exercise, but throughout the day. Whereas during exercise, training the gut is basically building the tolerance. And I think the first step we need to have is have the tolerance for the carbohydrates to sit in the intestines um, so that they can get absorbed. Um, and then it's yet yeah, down to personal um, capacity to actually... Um, absorb them and I'm not sure if we can actually increase the um, absorption rates of carbohydrates um, with any kind of training course because um, there is not a lot of evidence on this but we can certainly improve the tolerance to carbohydrates if that makes sense yeah yeah uh, it's, it's really interesting that you say that uh, the, the absorption might be more related to the 
day-to-day uh, intake than, than just within training. And it reminds me of what was kind of popular a few years ago of uh, having a low-carb, high-fat diet but then racing high and and if at least if if that theory holds that that you increase the the transporters through your daily diet then that would basically only mean that well you're you're wasting the carbohydrates you're taking in the race if you're never eating carbohydrates in the day-to-day because you can't absorb them anyway yeah i i don't really have like a lot of like proof to say that i'm correct in this regard but um Recently, I did a study 120 versus 90 rounds an hour. And one of the participants, um, which was the strongest uh, out of all, he was doing uh, for three hours, I think, 290 watts. Um, so, yeah, a strong guy. Um, this was 90% of his or 95% of his first threshold. Um, and he's known to be like doing a lot of this low carbohydrate training. Um, and his maximal carbohydrate, exogenous carbohydrate oxidation rates were not super high. So like they were like on average and very similar to mine. Um, although I'm like probably like 30 centimeters or so, um, smaller than him. Um, kind of showing that, yeah, even though he's highly trained, um, he doesn't have the capacity to actually uh, absorb those carbohydrates um, into the body. And perhaps if he had like more carbohydrates day to day, perhaps he would have the capacity to utilize more. But this is something yeah, we still need to kind of investigate in the future, um, find a relationship, if there is a relationship between daily diet and um, ability to oxidize ingested carbs during exercise yeah that sounds like a good potential phd project for for somebody um and uh then uh, if we move on a little bit to one topic that you talk about as well in the review is around personalizing carbohydrate intake you mentioned it uh, throughout this interview as well um First of all, uh, can can we use knowledge of the exercise demands and the athlete's physiological uh, status and physiological response to exercise to make any further uh, recommendations around how to individualize carbohydrate intake? It's a question that probably um, has probably two answers. So some people say they have to individualize everything, like the intake of like the composition of carbohydrates, fats, and protein. Whereas when I work with athletes, most of the time, I just look at the carbohydrates and I really want to make sure that the carbohydrate availability is high as possible at all times, especially in racing um, and sufficient. Um, and I know that some people like do calculations on how much carbohydrates have been used um, in um, racing or training. I don't know if this concept like holds true because first of all, you can um, change the substrate utilization by having different starting glycogen concentrations, by having different nutritional strategies during exercise. Um, and this can all influence how much carbohydrates you're actually using during exercise. Um, and also the next point is, well, let's say you come up with a number, I've utilized 300 grams of carbohydrates. Do I now just replace 300 grams of carbohydrates? Uh, well, the answer is no, because if you give people like a person 300 grams of carbohydrates, this doesn't mean 
exactly 300 grams of carbohydrates will simply go into glycogen um, because some of it will be oxidized. So at the end of the day, there are so many unknowns that you can't really, in my opinion, do like very uh, solid predictions. Um, and I think like just making sure that, um, in, especially in racing or intense training periods, uh, that carbohydrate availability as high as possible. I think that's the most important part. And on top of that, you add fats and um, and um, protein. And another like probably the problem with these approaches or some people would say it well you don't uh, train fat oxidation rates um, and I agree you don't really train fat oxidation rates what you actually do is you increase the fitness um, and if we were to do like a fat max test uh, in the lab today with an elite athlete um, and an amateur athlete um, and the elite athlete can be on a high carb diet and um, amateur athlete can be on a low carb diet, so he's fat adapted. I'm pretty sure that the high, the elite athlete would always have higher fat oxidation rates because his body is simply fitter. And I think this is the really important thing is what do you do in training? The most important thing is get the fitness up, the VO2 max up, the threshold up. And only when like those are maximized, you can't go any higher. You can start thinking about how to increase fat oxidation rates. Um, cause otherwise what you do by kind of training the body to use more fats is inducing low carbohydrate availability and you risk, um, losing or you risk, um, not recovering, you risk, um, getting into red ass and so on and so forth. So I think the most important think is always get a fitness up and then you can start about this substrate utilization rate. And, and even if you don't get in the like really bad situation of, of something like red S or, or just, yeah, th- things like that, then you might still not, and not be able to train with the quality to incre- increase your fitness as, as you said earlier. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's, that's good advice. And also what you said before about, um, that even if you know, even if you could know, uh, how much uh, glycogen you used or how much carbohydrate you used that, uh, we don't necessarily, well, that you can, it's difficult to know that, but you also don't necessarily know how much you should take in after that. I think that's, an important general point to make that uh, in this this day and age when there's a lot of different apps and uh, software and things not just in in endurance sports but in in health and fitness in general that are trying to make very precise individual recommendations and predictions and and a lot of times uh, there's not solid evidence behind that and and there are so many factors that influence things that uh, it's it's really nice like i think i think false precision is is common in in a lot of places around us and and it's good to be aware of the all of the factors that make things murky and difficult to 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 make accurate predictions about because then you can you can prevent a situation where where you get recommendations that are not necessarily correct basically yeah yeah like in in, uh, the the team i work with we have an app it calculates all those things uh i always look at the data i always like see the data and then in my 
head and I start thinking, what does this tell me? Um, and so more data is useful, but the more, the most important is, the most important thing is that you know the limitations of the data you have. Um, and yeah, yeah. you know how to like operate with this data, uh, because just following blindly, um, those apps can yeah, lead into a disaster in certain um, scenarios. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what about what? What do you think about continuous blood glucose monitoring uh, as a way to inform your carbohydrate intake? <laughs> it's it's a really popular thing, and um, honestly, I don't really think uh, we need such a, a device, and I don't think there is any benefit to it um, because, like, blood glucose levels. Um, they remain pretty much uh, stable during exercise, um, especially if you're tr- if you are exercising above the first lactate threshold. Um, and if we did a um, lactate threshold test, so like a graded exercise test to task failure, um, and we measured lactate and we measured glucose, we would see a very similar curve actually. So the higher the intensity, the higher the glucose concentrations. And this is so. Glucose concentrations can be affected by both exercise intensity and also the intake of carbohydrates um, in the body. Um, so probably glucose levels, dropping glucose levels be- below like five millimoles, um, so getting into hypoglycemia, uh, knowing this is can be important. But at the same time, we can simply prevent this by eating enough on the bike. So by eating probably 90 grams per hour, um, we can prevent this drop of blood glucose in most athletes anyway. Um, so this additional piece of information doesn't really help us if we do the homework and actually fuel properly. On the other hand, at higher intensities, knowing blood glucose concentrations doesn't tell us much because blood glucose concentrations are influenced by so many other factors um, that we simply can't know where they're coming from. Like even stress can probably increase blood glucose concentrations. Um, and yeah, we can't really um, know where, where, where this is coming from. Um, and for instance, we did um, um, this breakfast study that I mentioned earlier, like fructose glucose, and we were, people were riding after ta- um, task failure. And my hypothesis was that, yeah, at the end, um, blood glucose concentrations will start to decline um, and for as long, for the longer we can actually maintain the blood glucose concentrations, um, the longer people will go. But when we measured blood glucose concentrations at the point of fatigue or task failure, basically nobody was in hypoglycemia. So blood glucose concentrations were basically normal. Uh, we couldn't see anything there. Um, and I think this, uh, this is not just the only paper that shows that there are some other papers also showing that the exercise intensity, the higher it is, the less you will see in blood glucose. So only like relatively low intensities, you will see a decline in blood glucose concentrations. And this will be then indicative of insufficient carbohydrate intake. Whereas at higher intensities, which races, um, yeah, where, um, at intensities where races um, take place, um, this is probably less um, useful in my opinion. Um, so I don't at the moment I don't really see a lot of yeah sense in using that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, 
going one of the final questions here uh moving on a little bit so what about differences in uh sex and age and how that influences carbohydrate intake so you mentioned already that uh lighter female athletes they they might need to consume less during races are there any other differences to consider whether it's in training or in racing or in the day-to-day depending on the yeah sex and age of an athlete primarily um i'll my opinion is probably unpopular and i say that there is probably not enough of a difference that i would change the recommendations um uh, unless we're talking about like yeah i think a light male athlete um and yeah the same size women athlete would probably get the same recommendation for me um i wouldn't do any different if they're the same fitness level um same body characteristics i would probably uh, uh, be very similar but at the same time i would probably listen to the menstrual cycle and how they like cope with it uh mentally um how they like sometimes they can actually struggle in different phases um and yeah i would then try to find a way like to increase the carbohydrate availability to get uh, through certain periods um, easier. Uh, but I would definitely not say like, yeah, you're in a phase when you're, uh, you are oxidizing more fats and that's why you will have less carbohydrates in the diet or that because you're a female, um, you should have, I don't know, I've heard like less fructose or some other crazy stuff. I don't, buy those things and i think there is not a lot of evidence to support those claims um so apart from like the the actual body size and the like the power output differences i don't see a really big difference um in terms of like how we fuel those assets Mm, yeah and that's aligned with what i interviewed kelly mcnulty um a while back about uh, the influence of the menstrual cycle on uh on training and nutrition and everything really what that's related to endurance sports and and she basically said the same thing that you can't make a blanket statement for everybody at the individual level yes there might be things that you need to do but not not something that is true at a population level between the the two sexes and uh, what about age is there anything there that you would think about (sighs) um yeah it's Another like probably a good question. And one of the things that with age we see is that, for instance, when I work with younger athletes, I can kind of influence them in a easier way. So I can tell them like exactly you have to eat this much carbohydrates and they will not come back to me and ask, well, carbohydrates are perhaps bad for me or sugars are bad. Um, so my approach yeah, to those athletes would be much easier from, from my perspective to as compared to somebody that has like 50 or 40 years, because he will have certain ideas in his mind. Um, and I will, as a nutritionist, have to find a solution how to like overcome them. Um, and it's more like about uh, psychology, I guess, uh, rather than physiology. Um, and with age, I think like carbohydrates are as important. Um, protein becomes even more important, especially if really... Um, yeah, uh, much older individuals. So perhaps um, the portion size just needed to be higher. Like we're talking about 60 year old athletes now um, because of the um, anabolic resistance. Uh, but other than that, the general things are pretty much the same. Um, again, it's all about the 
power the power output or energy expenditure during the exercise the fitness levels so if we have an athlete with a virtual max of like 65 uh, that is age 65 or an athlete that is aged i don't know 30 with the same virtual max that probably the differences in nutrition would probably be non-existent pretty much yeah no that, that makes sense and uh Finally, a general question. What future research on carbohydrates or nutrition in general within endurance sports do you think is the most important or that would you really like to see conducted personally? Yeah, I would really like to see like more to see how important that personalization actually is and how, um, yeah, whether it's actually personalization or it's day-to-day variability. For instance, if we measure like, I don't know, exogenous carbohydrate oxidation rates, um, in different people on one day, we see kind of large differences. But would these differences be the same after every single day? Um, can we actually like personalize those recommendations and actually find in the lab you have to have exactly 93 grams per hour of carbohydrates on the bike, 80 on the run, and this way you will prevent gastrointestinal distress because this way you will make sure that all carbohydrates get uh, absorbed into the body. I think this would be super cool um, if we ever came to this point. Um, and also like to be able to measure like how much carbohydrates uh, people need for the recovery, to recover optimally, um, being able to measure like glycogen stores before races would be super interesting to me um, to be able to like monitor the status of um, athletes. Um, the moment, yeah, the ultrasound method is not as accurate. Um, so this kind of to see whether, first of all, personalization is even possible. Um, is it down to day-to-day variability or is it basically a personal personal thing? And then how we can influence it and how we can basically uh, provide recommendations um, based on this. Yeah, no, all of those sounds like really interesting topics. So let's hope that the future brings more, more evidence in, in those areas. Now let's move on to the rapid fire question. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Um, probably exercise physiology textbook by um, Scott Powers. Um, and I think some other authors, um, that's my go-to uh, resource uh, when it comes to, like exercise physiology. And uh, what's an important habit that you benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Having a routine. So waking up the same time every single day and trying to like do um, things, um, I don't know, exercise, start exercising at 5 a.m. Um, and then do the rest of the work um, later on. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? I was thinking a lot about this question and um, I wanted to say Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, but he's um, deceased. Then I wanted to say Tim Noggs, but um, I don't know um, in what kind of mind he is these days. Um, so I'll probably say yeah, my boss, Gareth Wallace. Perfect. And finally, where can listeners follow you and uh, reach out to you if they uh, perhaps would consider your nutrition questions, uh, your nutrition services and so on? Um, I'm mostly active on Instagram. Um, I was blocked already um, 
a few months ago. So I'm currently found at T Podlogar, T P O D L O G A R, uh, but also on uh, Twitter when, where I'm more quiet. I just um, listen and learn. Whereas on um, Instagram, I'm more vocal and um, I express my opinions all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, of course, you were blocked. You have pretty extreme views. No, just kidding. <laughs> Sometimes these algorithms work in mysterious ways, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, Tim, it's been, it's, been, it's been fantastic to chat to you. Uh, yeah, you're full of knowledge. Uh, so it's great to, to get to learn from you. Uh, appreciated it a lot and hope to talk to you again another time. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, we'll have links to Tim's website, Instagram, and Twitter. And I highly recommend giving him a follow on Instagram. He often posts super informative Instagram stories, uh, so definitely worth checking them out. Uh, also, there is a long list of studies uh, related to the topics we discussed included in the show notes and the episode description, so check them out if you're interested in going deeper. Next Monday, I interview Dr. Callum Brownstein on the the science of fatigue mechanisms and the practical applications for endurance athletes. Dr. Brownstein completed his PhD on this specific topic and is one of the top experts in the world on fatigue mechanisms and fatigability. So make sure you tune in for that one. It will be a good episode, I'm sure. Uh, and I want to uh, give a reminder about our training camps as well. Remember that we're running two training camps in 2023, one in March in Mallorca, which is uh, a bigger camp with lots of athletes and coaches and open for a wide range of abilities. It is in the northern part of Mallorca with, uh, with the famous climbs, Sakaloba and all of that in a great hotel focused on triathletes and cyclists. It will be a great time, so sign up for that if uh, you are interested or email me to learn more. But we also have a smaller training camp in the Algarve in the south of Portugal in January uh, which is uh, for just 15 advanced athletes so this this really is for quite advanced athletes with a fairly high fitness level we're looking to make it a, a very uh, coherent group of similar abilities and uh, athletes that are really looking to build a serious foundation for the year of racing ahead so a bit more chop wood carry water I would say uh, but it will be brilliant if that's what you're looking for uh, so check out all the information on scientifictriathlon.com and email me if you have any more questions. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy. Also, book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine your strategy further. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of their products. And thank you to Zen8. Use the Zen8 Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and your swim training consistency. Get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. And don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after a few weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.